You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, the kids are making their way out. Um, you can turn in your Bible. shouldn't be hard to find. Remember we did uh, Habakkuk not long ago, and you could see people flipping for like halfway through the sermon. Um, just open to the beginning. Just open to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, should be pretty easy to find. <laughs> We're like a third the church all of a sudden. Uh, fantastic. Love it. So Genesis 1 is where we're going to be. And you'll see at the top of the page, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe with the exception of John 3.16, um, those are some of the most well-known words in the entire Bible, and rightly so. They are not just the first words of the Bible, um, they are significant words, incredibly important words that lead out into an incredibly important book. And so we're going to spend the next 18 months or so um, working our way through this fantastic book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so by the end of it, um, we will have read right here in this service all the verses of all 50 chapters Um, We will have talked about every verse and tried to understand what it means and try to ask, what does this mean for us and how do we we walk in light of this? And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about this. Now, you might be asking, why Genesis? Why this book? And uh, maybe you're not asking, but I'm going to answer it anyway because it's important we know. What are we we getting into? And uh, the truth is, I was looking at going back to the Old Testament and maybe Leviticus or Numbers or somewhere in there and, and dawned on me. We've done Exodus. We haven't done Genesis. We can't, we can't go forward until we've got the, the foundation. We've got to go back to the, to the beginning. And uh, three main reasons come to my mind. There's more for sure. But first, um, we want to look at Genesis to better understand ourselves. This is our origin story. This is who we are. This is where we came from. The very word Genesis is actually a Greek word, uh, ganao, and and it means to be or to become. This is a book about where we came from, the foundation of of being, not only for the human race, as if that's not enough, but for the universe. So we want to know what it means to be human. What's the meaning of life? What's the basis for morality? All that and more is embedded in this glorious book. This is the foundation of all of it. And so to better understand ourselves, secondly, um, to better understand God. This is God introducing himself. God is laying a, a foundation for his nature and his character and his plan in this world. This book is the, is the cover page to God's resume. And so we want to better understand who he is. Thirdly, um, to better understand the gospel. There is not a book in the Bible that does not have Jesus Christ as its central goal and theme. 
And as we go through Genesis, you won't see the name of Jesus mentioned, but you will find on every page and in every chapter that, it is, that there is a pointing, a promising, a longing that is driving toward Christ that can only be and will only be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Genesis sets the stage for that, and, and in so doing, it is the, the foundation for the Old Testament and the New Testament. You cannot rightly or fully understand the gospel um, without understanding the book of Genesis. And so, um, for those three reasons and more, I, I'm excited to jump into this book. I hope you are too. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, if you don't have Genesis open in front of you, just slip up your hand and Terry will put uh, one of these fine Bibles right into that hand. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, please take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, but we want you to have God's Word open in front of you as we work through it. Um, before we get to the text itself, um, I want to do just a little bit of background work. Um, we want to understand what this book is. What are we reading? Where did it come from? Um, I don't know if you've ever read Genesis 1-1 and paused to ask, who wrote this? No one was there. Who, who has the authority to write in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here's how it happened. Adam wasn't even there yet. Where did this come from? There's a lot of debate uh, over who wrote, not, not only the book of Genesis, but it's, it's fairly evident as you look. The, the first five books of the Bible um, go together. Uh, they're known as the Pentateuch. And, and so the, the word Pentateuch simply means five books. That's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, they go together. And, uh, and for the last couple hundred years, the, the dominant theory among scholars uh, is that these books were actually the result of an editor compiling the work of, of four different writers. Um, this is called the JEDP theory, and, uh, and I promise I'll make a little bit of sense of this for you. Um, each of the letters, J-E-D-P, stands for a different author. So the J is for the guy who really liked to use the name Yahweh, and, and we see some stuff from him. And then the, the E is from a different author who liked to use the word Elohim. Um, the D is, is called the Deuteronomist. They would say he, he wrote Deuteronomy. That's mostly one guy. Uh, and then the P is for a priestly author. Um, most of them would say he lived like in or after the exile, so way later, and uh, they would say he kind of put in a lot of the priestly stuff, so the very formal um, Leviticus, those things, those are written by him. And, and so the idea is that somebody, an, an editor, um, grabbed these different books um, about 400 years before Christ, so again, way later, very recent, um, and, and kind of weaved them together to make uh, the Pentateuch. And so they then look at these books and they begin to slice them up. Which parts were written by the, the Yahwist and which parts were written by the Elohimist. And, 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 and they cut it up and they split it to the point where single verses, they'll say, have three different authors and was all muddled together. Um, and I tell you this because these crazy theories come along. And, and people get enamored, and the whole um, kind of academic world gets all in a dither, and they make their arguments, and I know I make this sound silly, and it is silly, um, but man, they make a good case for it. They're smart guys who are putting this together, and, uh, and, 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 and yet all the while, there have always been faithful 
careful scholars, faithful, simple, humble pastors, um, looking at passages like Exodus 17, 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a memorial, in a book. Exodus 24, 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31, 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in this book to the very end. So these passages, and, and, and there's numerous like them, um, lead us to conclude and have just about everyone for thousands of years before that Moses maybe wrote a book and maybe this is it. Uh, it seems fairly evident. If that's not enough, um, Joshua, Moses' direct descendant who wrote right after Moses in Joshua 23.6 says, Therefore, be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So, I mean, these people knew Moses and the book that he wrote. Um, if that's not enough, seven times Jesus makes statements like the one in Mark 12:26, And he wrote, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush? What's he talking about? Exodus, the burning bush. How God spoke to him, saying, I am God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Um, Exodus was written by Moses. Jesus said so. Jesus calls it the, the book of Moses. John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote of me. Even Paul gets in on the action. Romans 10, 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. When Paul talked about Moses, what he had in his day was the Pentateuch. And he's saying, Moses wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, um, I think if you believe the Bible's true, and you're okay with, with things being prophesied that haven't happened yet, and that doesn't kind of make you think it must be made up, and you look at this book, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion, Moses wrote it. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Um, now, We'll get to some strange passages. There's some things that were like, if Moses wrote this, that's hard to understand. That doesn't, well, we've got to wrestle with that. Maybe there are a couple things that were, were tweaked by an editor along the way or uh, tried to clarify. Um, but again, I think it's pretty clear en masse, un unless Jesus is confused, and, and I don't put a lot of stock in that option, um, Moses wrote these first five books. Um, if they were written then by Moses, that makes it pretty obvious who they were written to. They were written to uh, the people of Israel. Sometime between coming out of Egypt and before going into the promised land, um, God was cementing for them, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is my plan that I'm working out. He's, he's laying this all out through Moses for the people of Israel uh, as they are beginning their, their history, moving into the promised land. Um, and, and there was almost certainly an oral history, a tradition passed along. Um, the people of Israel had passed down the stories uh, from generation to generation. And if you look at the ages, actually it probably went from Adam himself to Methuselah, and Methuselah would have hung out with Noah. So, like, there's a pretty tight knit there handing this down. And, uh, and so this, these, this tradition would have been passed down. But at this point, God has decided through the Holy Spirit to inspire Moses 
to, to write it down and, and to write it down not just as tradition, not just as kind of human stories or one person's account, but rather God writing through him. This is God's word, God's account of what happened in the beginning. This is significant. That's unbelievable. Um, our greatest scientists today trying to do historical science, if you understand science, that's an oxymoron. Um, you can't test things in the past. And nobody was there to see it. And, and, and so we have this eyewitness account from a time before the creation of the eye. Now, we'll spend from about now till Christmas looking at chapters 1 to 5. And, uh, and the, the title for this first section is, And it was good. It was good. Because this is it. This is our world in its first created form as it was intended to be God's plan in place. So much in these chapters tells us about the the model and the form and the purpose for which God created. And and we see the world as it was meant to be in its its beauty before sin. And, and, And then halfway through, we go from it was good to, well, it was good. And we begin to see the fallout of sin and how that warps and twists this beautiful world. So that's where we're going to be for the next uh, few months. But this morning, again, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's, uh, let's dig into this together. Um, just a short verse this morning, passage this morning. Let me read it for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in your kindness and your wisdom and your foreknowledge, you saw fit to record uh, these words, not only for Israel, that they may have a a foundation and understanding of, of who you are, who we are, of what you're doing in this world, but for us, that we might look back, especially in this day of, of confusion and, and twisted um, truth and, and, and upside-down worldviews, you are God. You were there in the beginning. You have created this world, not as random chaos, but with a purpose and a plan. God, help us this morning. Help us um, over, throughout this series to submit to you to see your truth and to bend our hearts, our wills before it, to be transformed and changed, to be encouraged and strengthened and built up, God, by your spirit, through your word, um, would you sanctify us even this morning uh, as we come to your truth. Lord, may it not return void. May it accomplish what it sets out to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something you should notice. As you look at this first verse and you pick up your Bible and begin to read, I'm going to read through the entire Bible and you read sentence number one. And this, this might come as a bit of a shock to us in our Western culture, um, but I have to break it to you. The Bible is not about you. This is not about you. You're not the main character. In the beginning, God, the Lord Almighty. That's who this is about. Now, What the Bible tells us about God has massive impact on us, tells us about ourselves and and ought to radically transform the way that we live. But the Bible itself is not primarily about us. In the beginning, God. 
And writing of God, um, Moses here uses the, the title Elohim, the word very similar to the English word God, rather than the personal name Yahweh. And, and I think he does that on purpose. Yahweh is God's covenantal name, um, the name by which God relates to his chosen people, the name um, by which he rescues those who trust in him. Uh, but here the emphasis is on kind of more of a universal scale. The world, his, his power, his position in a, in a broader sense. And his identity is this ultimate supreme being. So Elohim is this title of, of power and authority and respect. And it's the ultimate example of that right here. These two verses tell us um, an, an incredible amount about this God. Firstly, we see in verse 1, this God has a position to which we must submit. A position to which we must submit. And we see that position, firstly, simply by his very existence here at the beginning. What an interesting way to start in the beginning. The beginning of what? Is this the beginning in an ultimate sense? Well, if we're talking about our world and our cosmos, then, then it becomes clear in the following verses, yeah, this is the, the beginning, but, but it's not the beginning for God. He's already there. Think about that. In the beginning, before anything else was, God was there already. Elohim existed from before the beginning. And he was, as the God we see revealed throughout the rest of Scripture, he was there as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity was there before the beginning. Now, you've probably heard the, the, the word Elohim is plural and uh, and I think you can take that too far. Um, I don't think that's evidence for the Trinity. There, there's a plural word here to start, but it's plural in an honorific sense. It's, a, it's, it's plural as a statement of majesty and, and glory. And so the Jews reading this have no problem with the plural there. Um, it's not evidence for the Trinity, but it certainly leaves room for the Trinity, doesn't it? And so later on, uh, John 1, 1 to 3, we, we see this set of Jesus in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was there. And through Him, everything that was made was made by Him. John 17, 5, Jesus says to God, And now, Father, glorify me in Your presence with the glory I had with You, before the world existed. Jesus was there, glorified with the Father pre-beginning. So, of course, then, um, even just looking at verse 2, with an understanding of the New Testament, it's pretty easy to see um, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. There's the, the Holy Spirit there as well. And we see uh, before anything else was created, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons existing uh, as, as what we can only describe as eternity past. And he has this position of authority by that existence. He was here first. Secondly, we see his position in the relationship that he has with this world. This God who existed created absolutely everything. His position is creator. Hebrews 11.3 says this, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So think about that. What is seen? What are the things that are seen? The things that you can taste and touch and examine um, the entire known universe. And those things were not made out of things that were visible. Notice the connection between seen and visible. He's talking about the same thing. All of the stuff around us, all of the, the matter of the universe, it wasn't made out of other stuff. It wasn't made from matter. The world wasn't made out of something. It was simply created. It's interesting, the, the Hebrew word for created here is the word bara, and, and the Bible never uses that word of a human actor. No human in Scripture ever creates in a bara sense. Humans create we take existing matter. We take trees and make lumber and build houses. We take I don't know what and make computers. Um, but we take existing things and we reorganize them and we structure them and we, and we create, kind of, in a lower sense. But when God creates, he does something unique. He brings things into existence. Something that did not previously exist now exists. We, we call this creation ex nihilo. That's the, the Latin phrase, creation out from nothing. So we need to get this in our heads. These two categories that exist, categories that can't be mingled or mixed. They have no overlap, no confusion whatsoever. There is creation and creator. The gap between them is infinite. It's, it's, it's beyond what we can comprehend. This God of the Bible, he's not like you. He's not like me. He is, by his essential definition, other from us. He is outside this world. He has spoken this world into creation. He, isn't, he doesn't inhabit rocks and trees and God is... Every, no, he is above us. Isaiah 6. The year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these mighty angels, each with wing, six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It means other, 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 separate, separate, separate. He's not like us. He's not one of us. He is something else. I think it was Paul Washer who posed the question, um, which one is more like God? An archangel in glory shining in brilliance or an earthworm crawling through the manure pile? And his answer is neither. Neither is any percentage like God. Now, I get we can talk about some of God's characteristics and whatnot, but, but, but in, an, in an existential sense, neither the angel nor the worm is any more or less like God. He is absolutely unique. And that uniqueness doesn't just make him other from us. It makes him above us. He's the creator. We're the created. The, the theological word here is transcendent. He is transcendent. He is above us in an unimaginable way. And as creator, he's the owner. This is his. He made it. He has the right to do with it as he pleases. What right do we as creation have to talk back to the 
creator. We have, we have none. He's in a position to which we must submit. We're so prone today to think so highly of ourselves. And, and then to bring God down. We see God as a, as a friend who gives advice. We see him as, as a genie that we can call on when we have need of him or a grandfatherly figure who comforts us. But he's not like us. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this trend. Um, people used to begin their prayers with, with powerful phrases of you know, our heavenly father or, or God almighty. And, and I remember listening to my grandfather pray. Um, his whole vocabulary would change. He never once did I hear him refer to God as you. It was always thee and thou. And, and, and you might think that's stuffy and silly and traditional and you might not be entirely wrong. But at least that came out of a position of respect and honor. I hear people today begin their prayers with, hey God, and I think, oh, you just don't get it. You don't understand to whom you're speaking. Now, let's not go overboard. God is gracious and loving and kind. He cares for you. He welcomes our prayers, but at the same time, we are right to tremble before him, to stand in awe and wonder. It was not for no reason that, that Isaiah saw the Lord and fell on his face and said, I am undone. I'm unraveled. These mighty archangels cover their faces and cover their feet uh, out of reverence for him. He is infinitely greater than us. He's not part of this world. He is outside. He is over uh, in, in an unimaginable way. And it's from that position that his laws and his commands come to us. They're not optional. He doesn't make suggestions about how we might live that we could consider and, and kind of pick and choose and take one or two or take the ones we like. I've been enamored lately with a, a poem from Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. You might know it. Um, it'll probably remember it from high school. Um, fantastic piece of work. It's written about a, a battle in the Crimean War. A command went out that was sadly blundered, confused, and uh, went out incorrectly and resulted in 600 British soldiers sent marching directly into heavy guns. And almost all of them died. But there's a line in the, the second stanza about those soldiers following the faulty orders, and, and Tennyson writes this, Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Tragic as it was, those men understood authority. The, the position that we have before God, by his very existence, his pre-existence to everything that is, and by his relationship to us as the, the creator over the creation, our place is not to make reply to God. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? It's not our place to, to reason why, to, to wonder, God, why would you, is this right? Why would you say this? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Our role is simply to do and to die, or actually in this case, to live. So the words of God bring life and joy and peace. He has a position of authority to which we must utterly and without hesitation submit for which we have 
ought to have the absolute most respect. So he has this position to which we must submit. Secondly, we see he has a power in which we can hope. A power in which we can hope. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Let's just stop there. This little line confuses a lot of people. Where, where did this earth come from all of a sudden that is, that is there but, but without form? Um, was the world there before God started to create? And the answer is no. Look back at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the, the heavens and the earth, speaks of the, the sky and the, the world, or the, the universe and the earth. Um, it's all-encompassing statement from A to Z, everything, the heavens and the earth. It was all created by God. We saw Hebrews 11, God existed out of nothing. So why then does verse 2 talk about the earth there that's not yet finished, this waterly, formless void of the earth surrounded by darkness? What is that? And, and, and the questions go deeper still. People start to point out, actually, that looks a lot like the ancient creation myths from other older civilizations. And there were these stories from the, the Sumerians and the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Um, and we, we have them today. We have uh, collections of these works that you can look at, all of them written long before Moses. And, and actually, Moses, growing up in Egypt, being educated there, he would have known these myths. He would have been familiar with these stories. And the language used here, it does sound kind of, kind of familiar. It does sound rather similar to the, some of these ancient mythical stories. And so the claim is made. Genesis isn't anything new. Your Bible story isn't anything special. We have all kinds of these ancient myths, and they're all the same. They, they overlap. It's common in ancient myths that darkness precedes light. And the darkness is a force or a, a power that threatens the creation and the creator. The Babylonian story called the Enuma Elish, um, the, the world is created using the carcass of the dead god Tiamat, god of the ocean. The word for deep used here? Well, it's tehom, similar word. They're related words. See, Moses is drawing on the old story of Tiamat. Egypt, the god Adam, um, was said to have arisen out of the primordial sea. There's the sea in the beginning of Genesis 2. So yeah, there's these similar elements, similar language, and, and I think that's on purpose. Because if you look a little closer, you're going to see that's where the similarities end. And let's not forget, we're, we're just in chapters 1 and 2 here, verses 1 and 2. We just have one sentence. And all these other myths are these weird stories of the battles between the gods. You can go online this afternoon and, and read some of them. They're weird. Um, Think about how odd it is the world is created out of the carcass of a dead god. Excuse me, dead god. And the sea and the, the darkness and the chaos, they're always present as these formidable forces that threaten creation, that challenge the creator. There's this battle between good and evil, this epic struggle between chaos and order, between life and death. And you come to the Genesis account. What does the darkness symbolize? darkness? What exactly is the great deep? Well, it appears to be water. Where's the great power that, that threatens to overthrow the Creator, to challenge Him? There's none. 
Absolutely nothing. No one even remotely challenges this God. It's possible the similarities are just coincidental. Um, They're not really all that striking if you stop and think about it. It's also possible that though um, Moses didn't write Genesis until much later, the, the true account, as we said, would have been handed down from generation to generation. This story would have been told among the faithful from Adam to Methuselah to Noah onward. And, and maybe these other myths are stealing from the true creation story. As the people spread at the Tower of Babel, they take different snippets and it gets confused along the way. Another option, and, and I think this might be the case, um, maybe some mixture of the last one and this one, but I think maybe Moses is partaking in some prehistoric trolling here. He's mocking their stories. He, he throws in some of that similar language. He, he reminds them of some of these other ridiculous stories, not copying the old myths, but showing how radically different the truth is, and, and, and specifically how infinitely greater this true God is than all of your silly little stories. This God doesn't battle and struggle. He doesn't engage in some conflict of good and evil. He just creates. He speaks and it comes into being. What then is verse 2? Why this formless and void earth? Why not just create it all perfectly, all done at once? Well, why take six days? Um, He's communicating something. He's telling us a story in the way that he creates. He's building a, a theology for us. Verse 2 says the world was formless and void. Um, if you want to learn Hebrew, that's a fun place to start. The phrase there is tohu vabohu. Uh, it's just fun to say. Um, tohu means formless. It's, it's used of a desert, a trackless wasteland. It's unproductive, desolate land. Bohu is a similar word um, for added emphasis. It, it means empty. And then there's the, the deep, the sea, the ocean. Sometimes the ancient world, um, especially the Israelites, feared the sea greatly. It it was a a symbol of of chaos, of death. It was unpredictable, uncontrollable. And the Lord takes the formless emptiness of of the great deep, and think about it, days one through three, he turns the formlessness into form. He gives it shape. He gives it order. He separates day one, the light from the darkness, day two, the sky, from the earth, day three, the sea, from the land. And then in in days four to six, he turns the emptiness into fullness. He fills the sky with sun, moon, and planets, and stars. He he fills the, the air and the seas with birds and fish. He fills the land with animals and people. That's a power that we can hope in. This creator, unchallenged, turns chaos into order, turns emptiness into fullness. And what in verse 2 is described as being without form and void, by verse 31, God steps back and declares it is all very good. This is the unstoppable, unchallengeable power of God. That should give us hope. He's able. He is powerful. All of us, every one of us have things in our lives that are marked by chaos and brokenness and emptiness and fear. This world that we are in because of sin has in many ways um, regressed back to darkness and, and chaos. 
And it's easy to get discouraged, to be fearful, to lose hope. Look back to creation. When God took what was without form and void, and by his mighty power, he brought beauty and order and fullness. The darkness was not a challenger to him. The deep didn't stand against him. No, he created them both. And by his power, he brought them to beauty. And and he continues to do that. Don't lose hope. Don't let your view of this world and this life become so all-encompassing, so clouded by the darkness that you forget the power of God to, to bring it to beauty. He has a a position to which we must submit and a power in which we can hope. And then the end of verse 2 shows us that he has a plan. A plan in which we can trust. The last sentence there, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That sentence is just pregnant with potential. It's possibility and expectation and hope. The the Spirit of God is here. Something's going to happen. The Old Testament, the Spirit of God is is often seen as the outpouring of His power, the working of His His energy. Uh, Psalm 104.30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Job 33.4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Here, the Spirit of God is hovering. It's a strange word used there, hovering, not a common one at all. Um, It shows up one other time in the Pentateuch, and interestingly, it it shows up right in the same context as the only other time that Moses uses the word tohu. Uh, I think he's drawing us back. I think there's parallels in these passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.11 speaks of the Lord like an eagle hovering over his young. He's fluttering over the nest. God is hovering. He's brooding. There's care. There's concern. There's there's incubation. There's preparation for for life. Something's about to happen. Yes, the earth was without form and void. There's, There's darkness over the face of the deep. But that's not the end. God has a plan. He's doing something. He's still at work. There's another key piece to this puzzle we just kind of brushed over at the beginning. Um, But it's significant that this book begins with the words, in the beginning. Greek culture, for one, um, saw history as cyclical. Not Not a straight line of time, but kind of round and round the washing machine cycle. And our culture, even, we understand time typically to be linear, um, But just go ask a modern physicist about the beginning. And they might speak of the the Big Bang that was the beginning of our universe some 14 billion years ago, so they say. Or they might reach beyond that to this just endless expanse of eons upon eons of nothingness. The Bible sees things differently. There was a beginning. A moment when this world began clearly and decisively, not by random chance, but by the purpose and the will of God. This world is created with intention, with, in, with, with, with direction, and an, and an objective. 
The Spirit of God hovering over the water shows us that, that God is, is intimately at work in this creation. He's not only transcendent, the God who is out there, the God who, who's created this world, He is also imminent. He is a God who is here, who is at work, who's in the midst of this plan. And that plan, that purpose in creation, alongside of this statement, in the beginning, implies that there is also an end. A logical completion, a conclusion. Isaiah 46.10 reminds us that, that God is at work declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. God has been at work from the very beginning, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and He'll continue to work. He'll continue to bring this through to the end, to His end, His perfect completion of all things. This world is not a, a random smattering of atoms bumping into one another. It's not a, a chance happening just produced out of nowhere over billions of years. This world is created and nurtured and ruled by God with a plan and a purpose heading toward an end. And that same mighty power by which God began this plan, by which he carried out creation uh, without challenge, without conflict, is the power by which he will continue to complete this plan. Without challenge, without conflict. Wait, what about, what about Satan? The great enemy of our souls. Yeah, there is that footnote. Yeah, I get way more powerful than us. Vastly more than us, for sure. Absolutely dedicated to opposing God and his plan. And yet, these two categories still remain. Creator and creation. And Satan is not creator. He's creation. He's not some great equal foe battling against God, not sure who will win. When Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together, um, Satan is part of that all things. Jesus continues to grant existence to Satan. And when the time comes, he will be defeated with but a word. That tool will have been used and finished with interesting. That end to which the world is inevitably going um, has, has many similarities to its beginning. This world, according to God's perfect plan, fell into sin, destruction, chaos. As humans, we, we looked at his great authority and we chose not to submit but to live out our own lives, to make our own rules, to go our own way. The Bible calls that sin, and it's, and, and it's God's righteous judgment against sin that, that death comes into the world, along with suffering and sorrow and pain, futility, frustration, brokenness in every part of our lives. But the Lord continued to work, to bring about His good plan, and He sent His Son. The same Jesus who was with God in the very beginning came to the earth that he created. The creator became the creation, lived a perfect life as a man and died on the cross, taking there on himself the penalty for our sin. And he put into motion there a new creation. For all those who would trust in him, there would be grace instead of judgment there would be forgiveness instead of wrath. There would be life instead of death. 
eternal life with him starting now but but one day at what we call the end will be a new beginning a new creation Isaiah 65 17 says for behold I create a new heavens and a new earth the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind a new heavens a new earth a new world a new universe Revelation 21 tells the uh, John's vision of that day then I saw the new heaven and a new earth For the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. Interesting, the world created uh, began with the deep, the symbol of chaos and, and death. The new creation has no sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's where this is going. The the literary arc, the the storyline of scripture goes from creation to fall into sin to redemption through the work of Christ to the, the culmination, the restoration, this new heavens, the consummation of all things, the new heavens, the new earth, without sin, without death, without sorrow or suffering, without pain or futility or frustration. And to that world, there is no end. Fix your eyes on that, on Him. And if you've been fighting against this God, fighting against submission, trying to go your own way, looking at God's way and saying, maybe I'll take this or that, but I'm going to hold on to this. Give up. Submit to him. Turn to Jesus where you can be forgiven. Take him as your Lord, as master. If you're weary this morning, if you're feeling the weight of this broken, sinful world, the pain, the sorrow, the heaviness that is so infiltrated every part turn your eyes again to this great God submit again to his great authority find your hope in his power that that takes what is what is formless and void and brings beauty and trust in his good plan he is working all things to that great and glorious end he will use all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose would you pray with me Father, thank you. Thank you that you are God from before the beginning, that you are the great and powerful one who has created the heavens and the earth, that you are unchallenged. God, that you are able to take what is empty and chaotic and bring order and beauty and fullness, and that you have a plan. God, you know the brokenness represented in this room. We've, we've brought it before you already this morning. God, you are working all things with a glorious purpose, this wonderful plan for a beautiful end. So God, we trust you. We hang our hopes on you. Lord, help us. We so quickly run to the things of this world to try to find comfort here, joy here, satisfaction here, rest here, and and all of those things, God, are in you. So God, we, um, we come to you. 
We trust in you, God. Lift our eyes again this morning to see you as you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.